Please fasten your seatbelts. The skies are rough and our two pilots have no idea where they're going. So kick back, relax, and enjoy your flight on no blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. We think of Saudi Arabia, we think of uh, a repressive culture, a repressive government, but we confuse westernization with modernization a lot. I was really, really inspired by the Saudi people in general, by the huge population of young Saudis, and then by just like the, the outlook and optimism of everyone I met. And that, to me, is the beautiful thing about travel media and Matador in particular, is its openness to being able to tell these stories from a, a non-typical news voice. Particularly Americans are just fearful of the entire world. They think like Mexico is a drug war. They think Colombia is a drug war. They think anywhere in the Middle East is crawling with terrorists. People are like, do you really think now is the best time with what's going on in the world to go to Africa? And I'm like, absolutely. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of No Blackout Dates. I'm Evan. I'm Tim. And Ross Borden is here today. He's going to be talking with us about Saudi Arabia's NEOM project, a planned, quote-unquote, smart city in the Saudi Arabian desert. The name's a combination of Arabic and Greek letters that means new future, and it's envisioned as kind of a, a futuristic utopia by the Saudi crown prince, as well as a purpose-built tourism destination. It'll be in the unique shape of a long, thin line be completely sustainable, incorporate smart technology, and yeah, basically imagine a city from Star Wars, and that's what it's going to be. Uh, slated for completion in 2025, so we've still got a few years to go, but Ross just returned from a sneak peek at its construction, so we'll be talking all about that. And Ross is also the CEO of Matador Network, meaning he's the guy who pays us, helps us keep the lights on. So if you don't give a shit about Neom, Listen anyway, because if we screw this up, we might be out of a job. That's right, man. When you're on the line, literally everything is more <laughs> real. Because uh, of Neom, the line. That's good. Uh, well, before we start Hot Takes, I wanted to ask you something, Tim, real quick, actually. Uh, as we all know, you just got back from paternity leave. Yep. And the best part about having a new baby is, of course, the gifts. My gifts was i believe accidentally sent anonymously i don't think i put my name anywhere on the because i shipped it right to your house my name was nowhere was on it, it. hold I on hold on hold on hold on what Be gift was mine before you yeah before you say it did you just send it did this just happen within the last couple, couple weeks? weeks yeah was it a colorado rocky shirt that says number one dad <laughs> on the back because you you got it <laughs> oh that's hilarious i've been wearing it to sleep the last couple nights and like i told alicia it shows up at the house i was like i have no idea who got me this shirt but it's hilarious that's so funny because I, I that's put, awesome thanks buddy <laughs> i put the order in and then i realized that there was nowhere in there that it asked me for like sender name or, or anywhere to designate my name just your address as the shipping address and you probably didn't see the billing address so well thanks buddy that's funny i think that's the only gift that was for me all the rest of them are for my daughter so yeah she's gonna grow out of that stuff though you're not growing you're not I growing know. anymore so i know i was like i'm gonna get him a shirt okay well enough of that we can get into hot takes <laughs> uh you want to ask me some questions first tim uh okay so moving into hot takes evan my first question for you what is your 
most irrational fear? And by that I mean, is there anything that you are nervous about or feel an undue amount of anxiety about that is just completely ridiculous? It's a totally normal situation or a totally routine thing to face in a person's life. I, and I'll tell you mine just to kind of get your juices flowing. And, and, and I've kind of, I've worked really hard to overcome this fear. But when I was younger, particularly in college, I was terrified of going to the thrift store to drop off items. And so I would only go to the thrift stores in the, in the dead of night. And I would leave my item behind the store because I was so afraid that if I brought it in when they were there, they would reject my item. And I would have to then like do the walk of shame out of the thrift store with my thing that they wouldn't take. Uh, and I've, I've since gotten over that and I can now go when they're open and pull in and have the guy bring the cart to me and I put it in there and they take it in. But I, for years, for years, Evan, I never went when the thrift store was open. I would go at like two in the morning and leave my stuff by the door. It's funny, when you first said thrift store, I was imagining pawn shop. And I was like, why are you going to the pawn shop so much, Tim? <laughs> so my, I think, irrational fear is going to a play, like sitting in a, at an audience of a theatrical production. And I'm ner and I like going to plays, but I'm nervous the whole time that one of the actors is going to mess up. And I'm nervous of uh, secondhand embarrassment. Totally. Because I like, how embarrassing is it if you're up in front? Because that's one of my kind of like, closet fears is if i were to ever be on stage forgetting a line like forgetting what to say in front of hundreds of people so being one of those hundreds of people i'm sitting there and i'm like oh my god like what if the, what if they stumble like what if he forgets his lines like it's gonna be awkward for everyone yeah you know it's funny i've never actually heard it termed secondhand embarrassment but i know exact i know that exact feeling it's like when you're watching something and you know the person is going to mess up like you just know it whether it doesn't even have to be a play it could be like somebody in class at school and you know they're about to embarrass themselves by asking something and you're like oh my god oh my god oh my god don't do it don't do it yeah there's a uh our the race for class presidents my senior year this girl gave got up gave her campaign speech midway through the speech you could tell she like froze forgot her lines and started crying Oh no! And she just stood there and cried, and I felt—I mean, obviously, everyone felt she's so such a nice girl. Everyone felt really bad for her. No one was laughing, but I—I I think I might have in that moment felt like as bad as she did because I was—I was the one who was like looking at her, and she was crying because the audience was like looking at her, and that we were making her embarrassed. So in a play, my irrational—I guess fear you could say—it's not a crippling fear, but a fear is. One of the actors is going to forget their lines. I'm going to feel bad for like being in the audience and witnessing it and making them feel uncomfortable. And I, it's going to shatter the illusion for me. I'm not going to be able to enjoy the rest of the play. That's what goes through my mind. Right. Well, no, that's a good one. I think that fear is probably more rational than mine uh, because I think a lot of people fear that, whereas I've never met somebody that is afraid of thrift stores like I was. When <laughs> well, I was yeah, you're, to be fair, you're not afraid of thrift stores. You're afraid of a certain experience happening to you at a thrift store. I, well, but it's also like an, it's the embarrassment again. So actually they're kind of similar because I'm afraid of being embarrassed by the guy telling me that he's not going to take my thing. That's what, that's mm -hmm. what, that's what I couldn't stomach being rejected by the thrift store. <laughs> except That means guy. because that means <laughs> let's unpack this a little bit. That means that you, Tim purchased something that isn't even good enough to be, resold secondhand at a thrift store because that's what that means yeah that's why exactly you're or 
or I mess something up so bad that there's no way that anybody else would ever want anything to do yeah. with it. Okay. Flipping it over to you, Tim. My first hot take is inspired by the poll that Matador Network put up on its Instagram story. Followers voted for what they wanted us to talk about for my first hot takes question this week, and they voted for the question, are travel agents obsolete? Yeah, 100%. And I'll tell you why, because there's now travel media is the new travel agent. Like you can go to matadornetwork.com and find everything you need to plan a trip from start to finish. You can even book it there. There's really no reason to to bring a third party into the fold anymore. And and I, I'm not just saying that to promote Matador. I'm saying that because I, I really think that the, the role of the travel agent was to handle the logistics that you yourself didn't know how to handle. But the logistics for most basic travel these days is is so simple and straightforward and can be done on your phone that there's really no reason to pay somebody else to do it. So I agree with you. Uh, but in COVID times, when countries are opening and closing, countries have certain mask restrictions, vaccine restrictions that are constantly changing and evolving. It's tough to keep even this is our job to keep up with them. And even I have a hard time keeping up with it. Is there some value now a renewed value in travel agents for people who just want someone else to sort all that out for them? I think that there's value if you are willing to pay to just not do anything like that's that to me, that's the value of a travel agent. Now it's not because you yourself couldn't do it yourself, which is what I think travel agents used to be. You didn't used to be able to book a month long trip to China without going through a travel agency uh, to organize the logistics and the, and the uh, visas and everything else along the way. Now you can go anywhere in the world with a little bit of web research uh, and enough know-how of how travel works to be able to string it together. You, you, unless you don't want to do that and you absolutely refuse to do it, you don't need a travel agent. It's the convenience aspect. It's kind of like we've talked about this before, package holidays versus independent yeah. travel. Package holidays, not worth the money at all in my opinion. But if you if you have the money and you're willing to spend it and you want someone else to just like plan a whole trip for you, go ahead. Why not? Right. RIP right. travel agents, I guess. Yeah, RIP except for the very lazy. All right, next hot take is, is the safety demo on airplanes a waste of time? Yeah, and it's not because if you travel a lot, you've seen it a thousand times. It's because if a plane is going down, no one is going to be following the rules. It is going to be absolute chaos. Exactly. It's <laughs> They do all these like, methodical okay if this happens that you have to put your mask on first and then help somebody else and then uh like when the seatbelt sign does this do this like if they're the lights go out follow the light it's going to be pandemonium yes if like the plane if, goes down absolutely if there's a plane going down i'm not sitting i'm not putting on my fucking seatbelt. that is the last thing i'm doing if the plane is going down all right you're you're looking around and trying to figure out if there's any way on earth you can get out of this thing all right you're not going to be orderly sitting there putting on your mask and trying to make sure everybody's in the right queue to jump out the freaking door well and you know who's going to be the first ones in line to jump out the window the flight attendants yeah right right and i right. don't blame them one second if i'm them i know these this plane in and out i know exactly how to get out of there i'm i'm first off the ship I'm yeah done. they're the only ones that know how to open the door so you can bet they're going to be the first ones. yeah out. they're done when they're gone all hell's breaking loose but i mean the safety demo it's just some of the stuff is ridiculous like like, take your time to read the instruction, the safety card in your seat back pocket. Who has ever done that? Who has ever been like, okay, I'm going to take 15 minutes and memorize the seat back card that was written and in, 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 in illustrated in 1973? 
And, oh, don't tamper with the bathroom smoke detectors, they say. Who's doing that? Who's getting on yeah. the plane being like, oh, I, got, I stuck my little screwdriver in. I'm going to tamper with the bathroom smoke detectors. <laughs> I'm going to smoke a cigarette in the bathroom and no one is yeah, going to know. That's, what, that's really like, what no gets me gonna off. Notice. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remove the bathroom smoke detector. Like, no one's doing that. Like, every time you get on a plane and the meticulous safety advice if the plane goes down, people are going to have panic brain and they're not going to remember any of that shit anyway. So... I, I right. don't know. It kind of makes me laugh now that I'm talking about it. But every the time... thing is, Evan, though, so going back to what you were just talking about, about secondhand embarrassment, I am always embarrassed for the flight attendant that has to give that talk, and I actually can't even watch it because I'm so embarrassed for them you know, putting in the fake seatbelt buckle. Like, who doesn't know how to buckle a freaking seatbelt? Like, I, I, am em- I am embarrassed for those people so that I can't – I intentionally put my headphones on and read – while they're doing that demonstration because I can't watch it. If you're a functioning adult, then you can put your buckle your own seatbelt. If you're not a functioning adult, like if you're a, like a child who's flying alone without a parent, the flight attendant's going to help you with your seatbelt anyway, rendering the entire thing pointless. So anyway, that's all I got on that. All right. And before we get into the interview, Tim, it was your birthday just yesterday. So we want to shout you out. Happy birthday, Tim. 39 years old? 38, man. You're aging me. You're aging me. 38. Okay. We got two years left in your 30s. What are you going to do with them? I'm going to raise my daughter. I'm going to go on a heli ski trip. I'm going to try to figure out a way to pay off my mortgage by the time I'm 40. That's a lot to do in two years. You're going to raise your daughter in two years. Okay. Wow. Going to raise her 17 years worth of life in just two years. She's going to do it by the time he's 30, setting new parenting re- or 40, setting new parenting records. She's super baby. Super baby. <laughs> All right. Well, happy birthday, Tim. And we're excited to get into it with Ross. So we'll see you guys on the other side. Ross Borden is the CEO of Matador Network, and he just returned from Neom, a planned, futuristic, and sustainable city in Saudi Arabia that's got the travel world buzzing. Ross, welcome to No Blackout Dates. Thank you. I'm stoked to be here. Yeah, we're stoked to have you. We did a, uh, a brief description in the intro, but let's start off by talking a little bit about what exactly neom is and why it's such a monumental step forward in city planning and travel i mean it's only in the early stages so far but you just came back from a visit so tell us what we might expect yeah i think too early to say monumental step because it really is in its infancy but i think that's why it's exciting um this invite and my way into this whole thing came kind of out of left field um i had heard about Saudi trying to, you know, transition from oil and gas into tourism and a bunch of other stuff, Um, you know, thought leadership, business, sustainable energy, and a whole bunch of other stuff. But um, I I really didn't know anything. I certainly didn't know what Neom was. Um, And so I was invited to sort of like an in-person think tank retreat where they had, uh, I think there were 14 of us, went to the region. and from literally all over the world, there was like a Burning Man artist from Colombia. There was architects and city planners. Um, there were um, creatives. There were people who call themselves futurists from Denmark. There was a whole bunch of like wide range of people. There's like a VC. Um, yeah, it was a very interesting group. And Neom is a massive uh 
part of Saudi Arabia, but and it's it's more than just a city. So it's actually the best way of understanding it. And I think we um, have done some early content about this on Matador is just understanding the geography. But Neom is like basically geographically like this massive swath of um, the, what they call the Hisma Desert. And that's the same exact desert that extends up into Jordan for for um, the Wadi Rum. So it's if you've ever been to the Wadi Rum or if you've seen photos, um, it's absolutely spectacular. It's completely flat and then has these like huge mesa flat topped shaped um, rocks jetting out of the sand, sometimes up to like a thousand feet straight up. So it's kind of like the cross between like if Joshua Tree and Yosemite had a love child, that would be the Hisma Desert. Um, so just like absolutely spectacular landscape. And there's just nothing there. There's like camel farmers and herders, um, but really zero development. And they're going to make 95% of this thing a national park. So it'll all be protected open land and not for development. And then um, as you go towards the Red Sea, um, there's a whole bunch of Red Sea coastline that's also uh, inside of Neom. And then there are these massive mountains. The ones I was just talking about are more like desert rocks. They're big, like really big rocks. But then there are these like spiky, um, you know, jagged peaks and, and a mountain range. And they have things planned for each of these. So they're developing the coast. We actually got to go to the coast on the trip um, and see where they're developing these eco resorts and we got to go um unfortunately they didn't have a dive master on site so we didn't dive but we all snorkeled for a full day and they're like honestly some of the most pristine reef i've ever seen in my life and i didn't know they had uh whale sharks and all and manatees in the red sea like so the the nature on the coast is really incredible um they've got some plans for developing like diving and and uh uh, conservation projects out there and then um, they're doing like hiking trails and I think it's like a mountain it's gonna be a mountain biking paradise um, but just sort of like low impact um, trail system through the desert section and then there's the line which is this hyper futuristic city that they just broke ground on that is 170 kilometers long and it's an entire city um, built along a hyperloop, a straight hyperloop. So it's a super fast train in a, as you can tell by the name, the line in a completely straight line. Um, and then the, the promise of that is that you're going to have anything you want within either walking distance or like an ultra short train ride. So, I mean, I think that, I think the line alone is, is uh, budgeted, uh, half a trillion dollars. I think it's a $500 billion project. Um, don't quote me on these, but the, the figures of the investment and the ambition with that investment is like really on, on an absolute next level um, to anything that I've ever read about or encountered or checked out on my own. So um, surely very uh, not short on ambition and we'll, we'll see. I mean, they have tremendous infrastructure challenges ahead. They've got challenges to open people's minds to traveling to Saudi Arabia, but uh, I was uh, blown away on, on a couple different levels from this trip. And you just touched on it a little bit. Uh, one of the biggest challenges is kind of overcoming 
travelers' ethical concerns about traveling to a country with uh, repressive social strictures. And how do you see that playing out? Do you think that a purpose-built tourism destination like this, which is really designed to jumpstart the Saudi tourism industry, uh, will be enough of a draw to, to get people in, in conjunction with the liberalization efforts that they've been undergoing the last few years? Yeah, that's a big question, right? Like, no matter how successful these, like, super sustainable cities are, how how well they manage the natural resources, and um, meaning not the oil and gas, but, like, the um, these incredible reefs and the mountains and the deserts, um, I think their Saudi's biggest challenge will still be just opening the minds of Westerners to come visit in, in the first place. Um, I'm a big proponent of, you know, not uh, forming opinions, uh, permanent opinions, especially negative opinions about a place that I've never been. I've been surprised in the past. Um, I've, I've gone to places that I, w- I was sure were a certain way and I was very surprised and I would put Saudi in that group. So I, I actually went to Neom and spent about a week there and then I traveled by myself um, independently and went down to another place called Alula which is kind of like their answer to Petra Jordan. There's incredible tombs carved into um, these, these rocks. And, you know, in doing so, especially when I broke off and, and I was traveling alone and I really started chatting people up as I like to do when I travel, um, I was really blown away by the Saudis. And the, I would say it's, it's, a, it's a super dynamic and interesting place because it's a very young population. There's, you know, tens of millions of people in Saudi Arabia, but um, I think it's like 70% of the entire population is under the age of 40. So it's a very young uh, population as, as a national population. And they are, I have to say, more open-minded. Uh, I, I experienced zero anti-Americanism, which, quite frankly, I was not expecting. I was expecting at least like cab driver, vendor, someone would, um, I mean, I, I stick out like a sore thumb, right? And I've got like a camera and a backpack. I'm clearly not from there, um, despite my beard. And uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I was just like zero anti-Americanism or anti-Westernism. And also just like, um, you know, this is why we travel. It's like to defeat misconceptions. I had so many one-on-one conversations with young Saudis about cultural differences, about um, uh, abaya, which is, you know, uh, what, what the women wear. And, 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 and really a lot of, which was surprising in and of itself was like a lot of private conversations with even like young women who were randomly like uh, running a tour or we had a moment or at a restaurant and I just strike up a conversation and I had this, my idea of Saudi and especially women was that like they were, um, you know, they were forced to cover up. They were, um, they were oppressed. They were told what to do. And I, I, you know, I really didn't find that. I found that, um, you know, MBS, first of all, they love MBS. Uh, a lot of people obviously have problems with MBS in the West, but the young population is like super, super supportive, even completely off the record, you know, 
um, in completely private conversations, they love this guy because they saw where their country was with relation to the rest of the world and women's rights and rights in general, um, you know, three or four years ago. And as one young woman said, like, I, look, I had no rights three years ago as a woman in Saudi. Now I didn't even have to ask for it. And I, I can wear whatever I want. I can drive a car. I can go out to on a, on a date with a man I'm not married to. Um, so, you know, she's like three or four years ago, I, I would, me and the man that I'm uh, having dinner with could have been torn out of that restaurant by religious police and thrown in, in jail. Um, and so now um, young men and women can even get a hotel together as an un unmarried couple. So the rate of change culturally is pretty mind blowing and definitely um, further along than I really had realized before I visited. And also um, it was really an eye opening moment when, and this happened twice with two different young women I talked to they're like, I love a baya. This is what I want to wear. I, I mean, I know it's weird to you Westerners because you can't see my hair or my face, but like, I, I'm, I'm able to wear um, other things, but like it's you Westerners think that we want to wear short skirts and shorts and stuff. And that's, I would not be comfortable. That's not my culture. This is my style. I have 20 different kinds of a baya that I rock. And I was just kind of like, yeah, I, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I, that was a false assumption that, um, that you are, that you have to cover up versus like, that's what you're comfortable in. And that's what part of the culture that you love. So in general, you know, um, I think it's going to take people like myself going to Saudi and really understanding these nuances and coming back with firsthand accounts to open up the Westerners minds. But um, I was really, really inspired by the Saudi people in general, by the huge population of young Saudis, and then by just like the the outlook and optimism of everyone I met. Uh, kind of on the other side of that, you know, this whole Neom the line concept is part of Vision 2030, a set of socioeconomic reforms designed to push Saudi Arabia forward into the modern world, be more tourism friendly, quote unquote, liberal, quote unquote. How do you see how do you see Westerners coming in, such as yourself, influencing that and influencing the Saudis' perception of Western culture and perception of what they want to become? Yeah, it's a really good question, Tim. I mean, I think that uh, again, this is part of the reason that I love travel because I think it is we have one planet to live on. It is a more complicated world every year as we're seeing in the last two years with COVID. Things that each of us does affects everyone else. Um, the environment, you know, climate change. We have huge problems that we're gonna need to tackle together as a human race. And if we're still fighting about the same bullshit we've always fought about, um, we're not gonna make it. And so I think there are things that Saudis are going to learn from Westerners who come in. I know I have young Saudi friends that perhaps, I mean, they didn't really say it to me directly, but maybe I opened their minds and changed their minds about Americans or Westerners a little bit because I had so many interesting moments and conversations with people. Um, and I think that that, that openness to, uh, to have you know, this new sort of society or build these new cities that literally there's, there's sand right now. There's nothing that exists there. Um, and then invite 
some of the brightest minds in, try and stimulate like business startups. Like I wouldn't be surprised if, um, you know, the, some of these places become hubs for things like Web3 and crypto and stuff like that. I think there will be lessons culturally to be learned on both sides. And we'll see, you know, how open um, MBS and, and that administration is to, uh, to, to changing the rules. Like I, I spoke to a couple young Saudis, for example, when you go to Saudi, there's no alcohol, right? You guys probably know that. Like, um, the only place that anyone drinks alcohol is I've told, I was told that people make it, they brew their own beer at home or they have, uh, or like moonshine, their version of moonshine. And then like inside the embassies, you can, there's like a full bar at the, at the, at the embassies, which is always like, a great invite to get to go to party at, at a place with alcohol. Um, but beyond that, I mean, it's certainly not served openly anywhere, no matter who you are, hotels, like nothing flights into Saudi, there's no alcohol. So um, I spoke to a, a whole bunch of young Saudis who are like two, two to three years, that's going to start changing kind of like it is in Dubai. It's not gonna be everywhere, but like going to hotels, there's a bar. Um, so, so things like that, like I think are going to be, um, big questions that remain. So we don't, we don't think that, uh, MBS is hosting private invite only ragers with like tons <laughs> of kegs and shot girls and his little as his palace. That, that's not, that's not happening. You know, who, who, who knows what's happening <laughs> on, that, on that level. But an, another awesome anecdotal story that I heard that I didn't obviously get to experience, but they had their first like electronic music festival outside of Riyadh. And they were like, yeah, there was no alcohol, but People were, you know, on substances, they were dancing, men and women were dancing together, like grinding on each other. And I was like, holy shit, I really, I did not know that this, this was happening or going on. So I think that, again, like, that's a great example, right? It's like the openness of the government to be like, we can, you know, choose our battles. We're going to let this, you know, with, I think his big thing that everyone's a fan of uh, there on the ground in terms of the citizens is modernization not westernization um they don't want to you know live in the dark ages uh you know and, and and they want modernization and all the great things that it brings um but they don't necessarily like the young woman shared with me she's like i don't want to wear a, a mini skirt that's not what i want so it'll be interesting to see that line where it falls on alcohol on things like music festivals on things like um, sort of more open society and met unmarried men and women dating um, on, I mean, another thing, as you can tell, like I was kind of blown away on, on a number of things. Like I met a number of gay people who were clearly gay. Like they, I don't think they were making, like announcing it in public, but like I going into Saudi, I was like, surely gay people have to completely hide in, you know, forever indefinitely who they are. But I encountered a number of young Saudis who were very clearly gay. So I think that modernization is coming and, and where that line of modernization versus Westernization falls is going to be anyone's guess and really interesting, but I'm excited to see it because I, I now have a lot of friends there and I'm actually uh, pretty pumped to go back because it's um, from a tourism and travel perspective, they're literally, it felt like we flew into a new planet that, you know, Elon had just discovered somewhere and we're like, all right, we're setting up camp here because there's like, there's nothing there. It's a blank slate. And a lot of it is like, 
beautiful reef and gorgeous mountains and beautiful desert. And so they're, they're literally starting from a clean slate for tourism infrastructure and tourism and travel experiences. So I think it's going to be fun to watch. I'm, I'm honestly rooting for the whole operation and, uh, and especially with regard to tourism and, and people coming in and, and then the, the dramatic effects that will have on, um, you know, providing Saudis with, with a better life. Yeah, and I think we confuse Westernization with modernization a lot. Like we judge other cultures through the lens of what we think should be acceptable. Like we think of Saudi Arabia, we think of uh, a repressive culture, a repressive government, and these draconian rules that we can't believe are still uh, in effect in a 21st century world. But it's not a matter of like wanting everyone to conform to what Western values and western style is but understanding that modernization can occur in a lot of different forms that don't necessarily look like it does in the united states so it's celebrating the progress saudi arabia has made rather than dwelling on some of the more repressive measures that are kind of slowly uh, evaporating yeah i think that's right i think that's right on and that's that's kind of what i what I walked away from the experience with is, um, and just the rate of, of, uh, movement of that tide is, is serious. I mean, it's, it's, in the, there will be rapid, they've already made rapid changes over the last three years. I think, um, the, it will accelerate, especially as they start to develop all these experiences for tourism, these futuristic cities where they're trying to draw young, smart, bright entrepreneurs, like, that that influx of people in both veins is going to um, only increase and accelerate the the rate of change. So yeah, it'll be interesting to watch. Yeah, I mean, in the past year alone, I think I've written down right here, Saudis. I mean, they changed the law to let women live independently without first getting permission from a male family member. They can now go on pilgrimages to Mecca without permission from male family members. Um, they can drive travel alone the ban on cinemas has been lifted censorship of imported western books and magazines has been slightly relaxed that's just in the past year and but how much of these liberalization efforts do we think are being done with the intention of uh appeasing the international community for the purpose of encouraging tourism rather than actually meaningful reform that's rooted in the culture itself I don't know. That's a good question. And like, uh, it would be a good thing to ask the, the people, but from what I could tell the, the, um, the approval rating that MBS has among especially young Saudis, that's seems to be, <clears throat> excuse me, what he cares about most. Um, I mean, as, as, as everyone knows, like this, e even the super hardcore regime that was very oppressive, um, you know, in the, in the early, you know, two thousands, like, and, and all the way up until pretty recently, they still enjoyed a very cozy relationship with the United States and the West over, over oil and, and other trades. So, um, you know, I, I don't think that was a requisite and we kind of, I mean, people are critical of other governments, but sometimes need to realize all the things that that the u.s government does all over the world that are probably a lot of a lot of really dirty business so um you know i think the u.s is
very comfortable with really bad guys across the West, even if they say they're not. And, um, and I think if nothing had changed over the last five years in Saudi, I don't think it would have really harmed relationships um, with that much sort of other economic financial incentives at stake. So I would say that, um, that the government is moving in this direction because it's what the people want. And they've realized that these young people don't want to be in, you know, this, this sort of draconian society uh, indefinitely. They want to have that, that modernization, that new opportunity and the, and also the writings on the wall that like, um, they will run out of oil at some point and the world will need less oil at some point. So um, just survival based, uh, you know, incentives. I think they're making these moves because they have to. So a few years ago, you know, kind of looking forward to their tourism economy that is budding, there was a group of influencers that were brought to Saudi Arabia by a local tourism authority, went and did the trip posted a bunch on social media and were instantly shamed by the travel community uh, the world over, pretty much. And I'm curious how you feel as an executive at a travel media company. How should travel media approach covering a place like this? Like, how, how objective do we need to be? Uh, obviously, we've talked about coming at it with an open mind. But what is the right voice for coverage of this type of progress? Yeah, it's another really good question, Tim. I think that... Um... I mean, again, if you want to go to a place and give it a shot and then come back and say it's a shit show or I disagree with the politics here or I was treated unfairly or I would never go back, that's fine. What I what I would caution people to do is like just make a, a snap decision about how they feel about a place. And this isn't just for Saudi Arabia, this is for anywhere without going there or at least without – hearing from someone that you trust and having an open mind um, about a place. You know, I, for example, I remember one such place when I was still in college, we scraped together a little money and did like a dirt bag backpacking trip through Colombia. And, you know, this is like, I don't know, like 2000 or something like that. And um, it was I was ready to go into, and, and, you know, everyone I talked to, like family, friend, Colombia, so fucking drug war down there. And then we're like, yeah, you know, might, it might be a little dangerous, but we've traveled. I hitchhiked all over Africa by myself. I didn't think I'd handle it. And like went to Colombia. Not only did we not get robbed or had a problem, but I was blown away by how amazingly nice and helpful and and just incredible the people were because now everyone goes to Colombia. So Colombia is like a hot spot um, in, in South America for all travelers from all over the world. But, you know, 20 years ago, um, I can't believe it was that, that long ago, but it was um, no one was going to Colombia. Very few people, I think, that I, that I had talked to. And we were, you know, at that point, kind of like backpacker. Uh, I was at least hatching the, the plans to start Matador as sort of like this hardcore um, backpacker style um, travel outlet. And so I knew a lot of other travelers back then and really not that many people were going to Columbia. And I think it was that it was the, it was the conception that the, the preconception and the misconception that, that they knew that they had around the world. Um, they knew they had a violent past. They knew it was perceived as a really dangerous place. And therefore 
the the everyday citizens, the cab drivers, the vendors, the restaurant owners would literally go out of their way for us every at every turn to be like, you guys having a good time? Do you need directions? Do you need any like, you know, you want to come meet my family, have dinner with us? And so it's almost like when um, when a pop when a general population, not the government, but a general population knows that they have an uphill battle in terms of their global standing with travelers and with people in general, they'll almost like go out of their way to defeat those misconceptions and make sure that you're having a great experience. It's almost like there's a direct correlation between places that aren't heavily traveled and places that are perceived to be dangerous. And we've talked about this, I think with guests before on the podcast, a bunch that people who haven't been to a country or a country that isn't frequently traveled, a popular tourism destination is considered that you tell people you're going there and they're like, Oh my God, like you're going to be safe. You're going to come back in one piece. You're going to be okay. Like you got to get travel insurance. And then once you go, you're all nervous that you realize like, it's just a place like any other people are nice. People are accommodating. If like you said, they're even more friendly because they want, they're aware of that stigma that surrounds their country and they want to dispel it. They want to educate tourists and the sense that hey welcome we're glad you're here and we want other people to come here too yeah for sure and, and that's i've dealt with that as someone who's probably more adventurous than you know my aunt or whatever you know like i've de i've dealt with that i've dealt with a lot of like thanksgiving style conversations about like you're go like people say when i went to jordan you know people the average american here's jordan they're like middle east right oh my god it's crawling with terrorists like Jordan was one of the most magical uh, tourism experiences that I've ever had and another just absolute winner in that region. Um, and honestly, one of the reasons I had such an open mind about going to, to Saudi because Jordan, the people in Jordan treat us so well. I, there's again, zero anti-Americanism like, um, and we had like big cameras and we were flying drones and doing all kinds of, you know, flashy shit that is kind of hard to be discreet when you're doing it. And, um, but, but the, the reaction from even like well-traveled friends that I have when I planned that trip, which was, again, this was like eight years ago or something was like, are you crazy? That's just seems so dangerous. And, um, you know, sadly, I think particularly Americans are just fearful of the entire world. They think like, Mexico is a drug war. They think Colombia is a drug war. They think anywhere in the Middle East is crawling with terrorists. Um, every time I go to Africa, which I go almost every year, I'm going uh, in a couple weeks. Um, they, you know, people are like, "Do you really think now is the best time with what's going on in the world to go to Africa?" And I'm like, "Absolutely, yes, it's the best time, like 100%." Um, so, you know, you can't you can't make everyone uh, lose their fear of the world, but all we can do, and this is really what Matter has always been based on, is like go awesome places, meet amazing people, come back and share those stories and hope to inspire other people who are your friends, family members, readers, followers to open their aperture a little bit for a uh, step outside their comfort zone and, and, and do some traveling on their own. Since we're on the subject here, I really want to drive this point home. If Matador, here's a hypothetical question. If Matador got uh, an opportunity to partner with North Korea tourism, assuming it was safe, assuming that like you, you were assured that, you know, the people you sent the studios team 
would be safe. Would you consider doing a partnership with North Korea tourism? Because we just, we've, I feel like this has been a subject that's come up a few times recently on the podcast, and I've made it very known that that's like my number one travel destination I want to go to. I, I, that's a place that you tell people you want to go and they think you're fucking insane. But was that a place that you'd be like, yeah, let's go, let's do a, let's do a branded partnership in North Korea? Yeah, I mean that I I might draw the line at North Korea. Um, okay, because, looking for where that line. Yeah, was. <laughs> I mean I, branded partnership. No, I don't think so. But uh, because you know there's like really like atrocities happening every day and the the black ops labor camps and stuff like that that are just like for example in Saudi you you can disagree as much as you want with the geopolitics of Saudi Arabia but like. They don't have like, you know, gnarly labor camps and in, in places where just I, there are things I've read about North Korea are pretty off the charts in just absolute horror. Yeah. Um, you know, I met I, I went all over the country in Saudi. I met happy people, people raising kids, you know, like uh, people who are happy with the lives and with their lives and their their opportunities that they've been um you know, given by the government. So it's not, no country has only good stories, but I would say North Korea has a lot of really horrific stories. Um, would I sub, would I support, if we got offered a press trip, would I support one of you editors going? 100%, like, because it is a, um, it is in a lot of ways uh, a super dark, horrible place, but probably an interesting place too. And I really, I really don't, um, think that anywhere is just not worth going to flat out. Like never, I would never go there as a journalist, but would I, would I take, would I accept money from, uh, you know, North Korea to promote their country and what they're doing? Hell no. Promoting it is one thing for sure. And then just going there and writing an honest feature about what you see is a, is a whole different exactly. thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And obviously a country whose perceived repression like Saudi Arabia is rooted in a, religious tradition that we might disagree with is very different than a country like North Korea, whose repression is motivated by brutal totalitarianism. And that's the entire role of travel media. And I, there's a great book called See You Again in Pyongyang by Travis Jepson, the Eben that we were talking about the other day, that is, this this guy did that. He studied in in North Korea for an entire semester learning Korean, traveled all over the country far beyond the typical tourism track that they guide you on when you go there on a week-long tour, and got to actually talk to a ton of people, uh, drink in hotels with Koreans, and, and had a whole nother, whole nother story to tell. And that, to me, is the beautiful thing about travel media, and Matador in particular, is its openness to being able to tell these stories from a, a non-typical news uh, voice. Well, well, and also like that's that's what our whole brand is based on people. Travel is people and connecting with people. I would imagine if you if you went even as a journalist to North Korea, they're not going to just let you talk to whoever you want. And that the person, the people you encounter are going to be more on a script than they are, you know, speaking freely about whatever they want to share with you about what it's like to live there. So, again, like that is it would be a manufactured experience. You are, I, it's never appealed to me. I see why you're interested in going Eben, but um, it just seems like a, the press trip that nightmares are made of for me. I used to go on a lot of press <laughs> trips when I was, when I was starting Matador and I even, even to cool places that are totally 
non-hostile places, I still had to hijack uh, a number of press trips where they're like, okay, Ross, get on the bus. And I'm like, no, I'm not going today. I'm going to go climb that mountain right there. Sorry. And because I have no interest in where you guys are going. Um, and I just don't think, I, I know you couldn't do that in Korea. You're like on a leash, right? In, in North Korea. Um, so everyone you talk to is on a leash, they're on a script. And I would imagine the whole thing is pretty like too choreographed for my, life. yeah, I totally hear you though. I would argue though, that, uh, a press trip to North Korea with a group of travel writers that are really cool that you really get along with would still be much better than a press trip to the Maldives with a group of the most obnoxious, pretentious travel writers <laughs> who are super annoying and entitled. So I'll, I'll leave that there. Totally agree. <laughs> but, totally agree with you there. I would just, I would be scared for you. I would just be like, just don't, don't steal on anything. Don't pee on anything. Don't deface any please, property. Please don't, don't vandalize get in trouble because I can't help you if that's something like yeah. that <laughs> uh, Well, speaking of places you can't go in North Korea, uh, the Omicron variant first case was just found in California. First case in the U.S. This is real-time reporting. This is as of like an hour ago. Uh, by the time this comes out, that'll be, you know, old news, a week old probably. But what do we think about this? We think Omicron is going to be the new Delta, going to spark a new wave of shutdowns. Um, you think the appetite for shutting down borders is just gone these days? What's What do we think? Or are you like me and you you think that the perception that is being given out about these variants and COVID in general is has gotten so warped from from what people are willing to absorb now that what we can hear in the New York Times might not even be relevant? I mean, I think the news cycles out of control, the panic around uh, uh, around this particular one is you know, maybe you could say it's found. It's every it's every country's choice how they play it. Um, I, I this hits close to home to me because I've been planning a trip to Africa for about four months with um, one of my idols, uh, Luke Bales, who runs a play a, a safari brand called Singita, and I'm bringing my whole family. And this is like trip of a lifetime, multi generational trip, um, and now you know, what is this base? This is now the South African virus or the, you know, the Southern African variant. And so um, a lot, you know, I'm going to get the same kind of Thanksgiving conversations I was just talking about for Jordan uh, in Saudi Arabia with this one, they're going to be like, you're going to go where, but um, we're going to send it unless they cancel our flights. We're fucking going because this is too awesome of a trip. It can't be rebooked. Um, and so, you know, and I, I, I have so many friends, again, like well-traveled friends, work colleagues, people who in the last couple months have been like, yeah, it's my first time on a plane today. And I was like, really? Um, because I, I was traveling the whole pandemic. I, I slowed down, especially work travel, which was nice to slow down. But um, we traveled safely. I travel with my, my four-year-old um, extensively to um, everything from like fly fishing trips to in Montana and Wyoming to, to trips to Mexico, I went to Mexico three or four times. Um, and yeah, I just like through that experience, I, I learned like you can move around the world safely, no matter what the variant is, no matter what this, um, new threat is. And so I think I'm, I hope for everyone's sake that the general public is gonna, is gonna, um, 
move away from their uh, ability to tolerate more shutdowns and more travel bans. I know Israel, Japan, and I think one more country just said no foreign travelers at all. But if this new variant is already in Europe, which it is, now it's officially in California, that means, and if it's really so, so much more transmissible, like it's everywhere already. It's not a South African variant. They were just the ones who were brave enough to report it very quickly. So I think it has been unfair to those uh, countries to block travel. I think people understand by now how to travel responsibly during COVID. We understand pretty much whatever you get on a plane, you have to wear a mask. In airports, you have to wear a mask. When you're in, I mean, going to Europe like I did in uh, September, and uh, you have to wear a mask pretty much everywhere indoors, which, you know, I don't love. But if you're willing to take the proper precautions, if you're vaccinated, then the border shutdowns at this point seem a little uh, superfluous and unnecessary and almost like shooting yourself in the foot when a lot of these countries depend on tourism for their economy. Well, that's that's the thing that was, I feel like, almost never discussed when the pandemic first really escalated into a global crisis was that people are like, you know, I think we did some articles about like travel, how people are getting travel shamed, people who chose to keep traveling. And there were a lot of people on their high horse about how unethical it was to travel but no one ever really talked about the ethics of people who need those tourism dollars in their economies, who just want a job. And every time, especially when I went to Mexico, people were like, please tell, tell people it's safe here. Please tell them to keep coming because my hotel is going to go out of business. My restaurant is on its last legs. Like we heard so many stories of people who, who's real, their livelihood, their entire, all their employees' livelihoods we're based on tourism dollars and we were cruising through, you know, places like uh, Puerto Vallarta and it was just a ghost town, like literally a ghost town. We get in a cab or an Uber and I was, you know, talking to a dude in Spanish and he, he's like, yeah, you're my, you're my fourth ride in a week. Um, so these, these tourism economies were like just absolutely decimated and there was never a, a mainstream discussion about the ethics of that, because I think um, that's another great thing about travel. And the reason I love travel is that we can take our dollars to other places where people really depend on them and have this even exchange of money for incredible experiences, food, you know, new people, new friends. And like, um, so I, I, I'm just like, I think that whole argument is like, oh, it's so unethical to travel right now. I think it's bullshit, personally. Uh, what my first press trip four years ago was to Aruba, 80% of Aruba's economy is tourism based. So what's what's less ethical? Is it staying away from Aruba because you don't want to either bring COVID there or, or contribute to their COVID spread, even though you're wearing a mask and vaccinated? Or is it depriving them for no reason of 80% of their economy and putting a ton of people out of work? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 le the least ethical thing you can do is not get vaccinated, not, you know, refuse to wear a mask, um, then you are putting other people at risk. But as long as you are vaccinated, you follow the rules, you're not going to give some poor flight attendant a hassle for having to wear a fucking mask, which is seriously not a big deal. And I just can't believe the shit these people have to put up with at this point. Um, then I, I think it's more ethical to travel. Right. And, you, you you know, it parlays also into what's been called recently the Great Resignation. 
you know, these people that are on the front lines on airplanes, in restaurants, in Ubers, they're put in the position of having to enforce these rules that they never wanted to do in the first place. And then these people are giving them shit, you know, and that that is the unethical uh, take on COVID right there. Totally. Just couldn't agree more. And just to bring this full circle, I've just looked up uh, North Korea's reported total COVID cases. Zero. None. <laughs> they eradicated it. That's it's. Could you believe that? COVID, homosexuality, all, all kinds. <laughs> it just doesn't odd, exist. Odd that they just don't have any of these things at all. Zero, zero across the board. Well, on that note, Ross, thanks so much for coming and joining us and having this talk. It's been great. That was quick. It was a pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Okay, we're here in News of the Day after an enlightening chat about Neom with uh, the man himself, Ross Borden. So both of today's news stories are kind of uh, kind of feel-good ones. The first one I want to talk about because I assigned it to a writer is about co-working spaces in malls. And if you think about it, a mall kind of is a co-working space, right? Like the food court uh that has wi-fi you can sit there there's going to be a ton of people coming in and out you know there's a lively atmosphere you can get some food you can get something to drink you can walk around uh i've always kind of thought about going to a mall to work anyway and now as we learned in this article many major cities are opening co-working spaces in their malls including a partnership between Saks fifth avenue and WeWork. uh what are your thoughts evan yeah well it kind of proves my point about co-working spaces uh that i've always held, which is that anything could be a co-working space as long as it has Wi-Fi and access to food and drinks and some other people around. And that's basically what a mall already is. So the article is talking about how because of COVID, a lot of malls are closing and that one proposal for repurposing the space, the real estate is inserting co-working spaces there. And when I read this article, the first thing I think is malls are already co-working spaces. They've got a ton of seating. They've got Wi-Fi. Maybe you could make that Wi-Fi a little more accessible. Um, they've got cafes, they've got food courts, tons of places to sit, and there's a ton of people around. And I think if more people just use, it's more of a state of mind thing than anything else. If more people just decided to go to malls for a co-working space, there you go, boom, remote work heaven. I agree. It's kind of like airport lounges. Like an airport lounge basically is a co-working space. There's literally no difference between an airport lounge and a co-working space. All a co-working space is is a place where people sit with Wi-Fi. And maybe an expectation of relative peace and quiet and do work. That's it. Like, I think I mentioned this a few months ago when I joined a co-working space for one month here at Newburyport. I was all excited. I was like, that's right down the road. I'm going to do, I'm gonna, it's a hundred bucks a month. Which I thought was pretty, with for unlimited access, I thought that was pretty reasonable. And I went there maybe twice all month because think about it, a hundred dollars for one month. Or I could go to a cafe, spend $2 a day on a cup of coffee to sit in that cafe. $2 a day on a cup of coffee is $56 if I wanted to go there every single day of the week, seven days a week, every day of the month. That's $56 a month if I did that. That's half the price of a co-working space to go to a different cafe, to change up my environment every day and to have you know more of a uh, kind of be out in public. And I feel like that's more value, no? I, yeah, I agree. I hear you. The, the, the thing about co-working spaces that we've discussed before is that some have events and networking happy hours, which is what makes the membership worth it. Others do not. And those co-working spaces, by and large, yeah, you might as well just go to a cafe or a mall. So if he doesn't have a, co a networking event or any kind of social event built into the membership, not worth it, Tim says. 
surprisingly, Tim and I seem to have reached a consensus, some common ground on co-working spaces. That's a great way to end that one. Uh, well, the next article that I have is called Thanksgiving Eve is the best bar night of the year to party with total strangers. It's an article I wrote la two years ago, actually, before COVID, and still holds true. We just republished it. And because Thanksgiving Eve was or Thanksgiving was just a week or two ago by the time this comes out, still relevant to talk about. Thanksgiving Eve is, I feel like, at least in New England, where I'm from, the biggest bar night of the year. And I've since learned that that's not true in the rest of the country, necessarily. What about you, Tim? Have you found that to be true in Colorado? Best bar night of the year? I have, actually. I, I had always heard that when I was in college, and I, tr I tested it by going to this bar in my hometown, Littleton. I, the high school I went to was, you know, on a busy major intersection, and the other three corners of the intersection were shopping centers with grocery stores and restaurants. There was a bar in one of those shopping centers that was kind of like a high school reunion bar. You know, like every time I was in town, I would go in there, I would run into a bunch of people from my high school class or whatever. So I went in there at least once on Thanksgiving Eve, and it was raging. Like the whole, all these kids I hadn't seen in years were in there. A bunch of people from my neighborhood that were older were in there. Like it, a bunch of people that I used to work with at the grocery store were in there. Like I think that that is true. I think it's still true, in fact. Yeah, what's interesting because I spoke with a friend in, I think, California who had no idea that Thanksgiving Eve was a big bar night. Just It just wasn't a thing over there. Another friend, I think somewhere in the Midwest, and I don't know if it's a regional thing or it has to do with maybe the size of your town or if there is a local bar. I know some people that live around Boston that just go into Boston, like the Boston bars. They don't have a local town bar. So I think where you live depends on, uh, determines kind of what your night looks like. But it's, uh, it's definitely, people are very split on it where I'm from. You either love it or you hate it. You love just kind of seeing what kinds of legends show up after 10 12 years that you forgot existed or you absolutely hate seeing those people from high school that you never wanted to think about again so i personally love it i retired from it officially uh, two years ago before covid then covid hit kind of maybe reevaluate things came out of retirement this year i was glad i did had a good time but you know when you're 23 4 or 5 that's that's like really the sweet spot of thanksgiving eve yeah, for sure. And it, it, it comes down to that, too. I think it's the age because, you know, people move away after high school. They come back for the holidays, for Thanksgiving. This is like the one night of the year they're in town where they're not hanging out with their family. Everybody wants to go out and party and see what's going to happen. So Thanksgiving Eve is the night that that's going to happen. It does kind of ruin your Thanksgiving, though, because then, you yeah. sh you, you know, you go to sleep at like 3 a.m. You wake up at 11, got to be at lunch or whatever, Thanksgiving dinner in like two hours. You're not your appetite maybe takes a little bit of a hit because you're kind of not feeling so good. So I don't know. It's kind of, it's a risk reward situation. Yeah, talk about a good hangover meal though. The article actually was about how traveling on Thanksgiving Eve is great. If you're if you're away for Thanksgiving, just go to a local bar because you'll be you'll be the le we call it Legends Night. Well, you'll be the legend of that town's Legends Night. You'll be the guy that no one has any idea who they are. You can pretend to be someone you're not. You can literally pretend like you went to that high school and you didn't get pissed at people for not remembering you. Um, it was kind of designed to show like, hey, like if you're in an unfamiliar place on Thanksgiving Eve, you can still go out and have an even arguably even better time than if you're at home. The thing about that is, is that if you did that and you pretended you were somebody else and you're trying to convince other people that you are that person, those people, a lot of them are going to be like, oh, shit, 
Yeah, totally, man. What's up? Yeah, you know they're going to feel and, so and, bad. They don't remember you. They'll play along. But there's going to be the one person in there that doesn't buy it, and that person is going to then lose any respect they had for these people in high school that are just trying to be like, oh, yeah, I remember him now. It's honestly the plot of a pretty funny rom-com, I think. Home for, home for Thanksgiving, it's called. Home being in quotes. Right, and the dude is out at the bar, and he meets this girl, and originally he went to the high school, but it's all a big lie, and then she finds out, and she doesn't like him anymore, and so then he has to chase her down to her job in New York City where she lives now, and then they finally rekindle the romance while they're out on a tour of, you know. I I love this. We'll circle back with Ross after after this on uh, Matador Studios' first short feature film production of a romantic comedy called, quote-unquote, Home for Thanksgiving. This no. This is when we need to rope Alex Boylan back in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Stay tuned for our Matador's next major box office bust, Home for Thanksgiving. All right. Thanks for listening to No Blackout Dates. Make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If for some reason you want to follow what we're up to, I'm Ebenflow underscore on Instagram, and he is Tim Winger one We'll see you guys next week.